Welcome to Growing Up Fire with Jamie Coots. Welcome to Growing Up Fire, episode 23. I'm here with Jason Wigton. Hope I said that right. Thanks for coming, right? You're the Director of Technical and Emergency Services, and I'm, I'm going to be, this one's hard for me too, but Kitas Kinao, yep. close enough, yeah, Tribal Council up in Northern Alberta. So thanks for being here. I'm so excited. You and I do lots of stuff together over the years. And when I finally got up the nerve to ask you and you said yes, <laughs> I was pumped that you're willing to come on the podcast and chat with me about uh, all things fire and emergency management. Sitting here at the Slave Lake Airport, which is another kind of cool thing, right? Uh, yesterday we were here, search and rescue helicopters flying in and out and Hercules flying in and out. All the different emergency services working here yesterday to found, find a downed aircraft. So... Sadly, they found the aircraft and the person didn't make it. But uh, just to see all those resources come together, I thought was kind of a cool thing. So I thought we should mention that we're at the airport and, and cool things are happening around here. But yeah, thanks for coming. No, it's, it's awesome. But I know we've been working a long time and I actually had to get up the nerve to actually come and sit in here and do this. So. <laughs> it, it doesn't take any nerve. You're with friends here today and friends and family listening. That That's who's out there, right? Everybody just wants to hear about firefighting. Everybody just wants to hear about all the cool different things. And so, you know, it's funny. We were talking just before we started that this all got started because I wanted to have a chance to talk with all the coolest people I know in this business. And it's really been working great. It's really been fun. But the big challenge is convincing people to come on the show and, and to talk about all these things and, and do all these things. So thanks for being here. So let's just start with fire in the family. Growing up fire is why we decided, right? Whether we decided as a kid to start firefighting, as a teenager, as an adult. So what's your story? What what got you into firefighting? It's actually interesting because I grew up down south near Cochrane, Calgary. And and I've always, we lived really close to the fire department in Cochrane and I always wanted to be a firefighter and just never worked out. I had the chance to come work up north and join the oil field like everybody else. <laughs> but there was a, there was an accident um, that took the lives of five friends of mine. And I knew the chief really well up in, in Red Earth. And after that, I just went and asked him one day if I could join practice just because I wanted to help out. And that's kind of why I joined, um, just to help the communities out. And that's where I started. That's a story that lots of people have, right? You find out you have an interest in it, right? And then all of a sudden something big happens in the community and you're like, hey, I, I can help out with this. I can, and they, I mean, that's a big part of that volunteer piece, right? Is to say, I can help out with the community. I could, if you asked any firefighter, you know, why you do this job, it's to help out the community. It's the camaraderie amongst firefighters. It's being part of that fire family, right? Yeah, it's an exciting, crazy job. But, I mean, those other things are things that really pull us towards it and drive us towards it. Definitely. And I, and I think once I got into it and kind of being out in rural Alberta, you kind of learn, and I've done this a few times, is you learn that you have to learn almost everything up there because you're by yourself. I know I've, I've met with, with city firefighters and they're stuck on one truck or they're doing another job that they don't see a lot of the other jobs. But you're out in rural Alberta, we're doing medical assist, we're doing search and rescue, we're doing vehicle act stuff, we're doing some structure fires but it never stops and there's always something new to learn which really kept me going right um, there's always something new to learn i switched to the city stuff here for the last little bit i still kind of live vicariously through my son right who was called me and said hey we're out looking for a plane that crashed and and i was like what 
right? And, and then just before that, he was talking about this big rescue that he went on. They had to drive 80 kilometers to get there and 80 back, right? And and then had this massive shop fire and all this stuff. And and so it's like, wow, all these stories and all these things. And and so you've spent a lot of your career in kind of remote rural areas. All of my career has been, been up north and, and I've definitely worked... I did a little bit with the municipality, and then I moved over to um, the community I lived in, Loon River. They actually didn't have a fire department, and I'd only been on the fire service for six years. And, and funny story is, you're the one that actually did my first level one course for me. Oh, um, no. This, this is a funny story. <laughs> Doing our level ones. I was, I was the last one at the MD at the time to get my level one with a group of six of us. It must have been 32 degrees out that day, and I still remember this day. It's back in the time when, after practice, everybody drank a case of beer. It was just normal. But everybody had gone out that night before, and the next day we were doing our BA testing. It was 32 degrees, and we did our, our little run. Three of the people didn't make it back because they, they puked in their mouths because it was so hot and they were so hungover. I'll never forget that. But that was the first time that, that me and you and I actually met was back in 2001. 2002 is when we did that training up in Red Earth. But you met me and you still stuck with it. Still good, stuck good with for it. you. <laughs> it was drawn to a, like a, a moth to a lamp. So yeah. I've done some interesting training over my years. And now I'm kind of at that level where I'm kind of passing that down and trying to get everybody else excited to it because there's so much to it. And yeah. You know, you know, it's funny. Like, how, how would you get a group of people to do such hard training and give up so much time? For free, right? And I mean, like 2001, you're talking about, like, you weren't getting paid anything to be there. I probably wasn't getting paid anything to be there. We're just all doing it for the community. You know, money's changed some of that. The shortage of time's changed some of that. But, you know, you look at all of the people that do all that training and do all those things, and and it's for free, right? It's, I think uh, a lot of it goes back to that, that brotherhood, though. Like, they're all your friends. Once you start, like, even if you're the rookiest rookie and you've been there one day, Everybody gets on to you. Like, I've gone to every, a lot of fire departments all over the world, well, all over North America anyways, and they're all so happy to see another firefighter. Yeah, it's, doesn't, doesn't it's true. <laughs> every single fire hall I've stopped in in my travels, anywhere I've gone on this planet, as soon as you say you're a firefighter, you're welcomed in, you can do whatever. And my wife and my daughter have used it on several occasions to gain access to a bathroom or to, uh, you know, get some directions to go somewhere. And it is, it's just uh, this huge family that uh, it, it's crazy. You know, in my consulting life, as I got to travel all over, you know, I would stop in small fire department, 10, 15 people all the way up to the biggest city. And no one has ever said to me, I don't have time or you can't come in or like everyone's always just like, oh, yeah, get in here. Check it out. What, what's going on? Tell us stories. Right. That's like, awesome. Part. Like we did a road trip, me and my wife and the kids did one and we stopped at every fire department. We saw a vehicle at, that somebody was at. It was the best experience I had. I met some really cool people and kind of went through their operations and stuff. And every single fire hall is different, which is which is really neat to see. Yeah. Well, yeah. So the fire halls are different. The trucks are different. The equipment's different. I've even found, uh, you know, over time you build up a, a group of friends on social media. So I would just like take some pictures of the fire department I'm at, throw them up if there no vehicles were there. And every single time within five, 10 minutes, right, you could just sit and wait and someone would be like, oh, are you still there? We'll come down right now. Or I got a buddy there and they're tagging them and trying to text them and phone them. And here's a number, get a hold of this guy. And, you know, so within 15, 20 minutes, even if there's no one there, 
somebody comes down, show, lets me in, we look around. You know, it's that tight of a world that when someone knows you're looking, someone knows you want to check it out. You know, been to city ones where you're checking it out and they get a call and they go, hey, we got to go, but sorry, we got to kick you out because that's the rules, right? But if you just wait here, a platoon chief's going to come over and grab you and you can go see a different hall or, you know, just drive over to station two and, and they're sitting there waiting for you. And uh, so many like meals, right? Stop for a coffee, stop for, uh, I don't know why, but ice cream. I've eaten a lot of ice cream at a lot of fireballs. <laughs> I just probably look like a guy that eats ice cream. So, but it is exciting to be able to go and do those things. And it's cool that you, uh, you still have that memory and you still remember your first class of people. And you probably remember most of their names and where they were from. Yeah, well, most, most of them for the community. Right. So those parts are so exciting to me. So you started off in Loon then? No, in, in Red Earth. Oh, in Red Earth. Okay. Yeah, for Freedom Municipality. Cause was that, that for Trent? Were you with Trent? Trent yeah. Oh, yeah. Way back, eh? Way back for Trent. That's uh, awesome. He, he taught me a lot. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's great fire chief for many, many years up there. Hmm. It actually says a lot in different communities, right? So Red Earth, in the 30 years I've been doing this, I think they only had three fire chiefs, right? And everyone stayed a long time and did a good job. And and so that's fun. So an incident basically pushed you towards the fire service and being interested. And then, you know, you get in that family and you stay there and, right? So your early times as a firefighter, what what were you thinking? You're going to these house fires, you're going to these car accidents. What's going through your mind? I think it was more of, I guess, the, the adrenaline to go out to these first calls. There was a lot to learn. Luckily, I had a chief that, that did a lot of training on site because we only met every two weeks, so we didn't get a whole lot of training back then. But most of our training was you get a call. This is how you're going to run the truck or this is how you run the jaws or the hydraulics. Like, yeah. It was almost more of an apprenticeship back then. It, it really it was. wasn't it, right? Like now they want us to have all these courses before we even kind of get going. And it actually makes me a bit sad because you'll start on a fire department and in three months they start you on a 1001 program and you're trying to learn all this stuff and draw it all in. But really, if we would just give you a year's worth of experience and a year's worth of training, the 1001 program would be a lot easier a year into the program. Right? Yeah, it would. Cause yeah, you don't learn a lot when you're sitting behind the book and I know there's, I know there's a whole bunch to it, but getting hands-on experience when you actually have somebody there that you definitely need to save a life or you're trying to put out somebody's house fire because that's their home. It makes a difference for me doing it in a, in a live fire can or an extinguisher kind of 3D model. There's a big difference from hands-on, but I know the importance of it now. Being in that role is kind of the fire chief and, and the director you know all that and you're trying to keep your firefighters just as safe as whoever you're, you're, you're saving so I, I know the importance of it but i do miss the hands-on training like you're out there the adrenaline like even now I, I don't do a lot of call outs now in my new position but i get a call out or i get asked to go help it's it's like a drug to me i don't do a lot of any other things but uh, the drug for me is, is firefighting and emergencies that's awesome. And it's fun because you see, you know, as we've all traveled up in our career, right, we all started as a firefighter and we've we've done all these different things. So many times you and I have ended up at different places together. And so one time I can think of we were in the Slave Lake Fire Hall in the Bay is right when we started those open uh, Saturdays where we were just doing training. And so, of course, you got all of the people that you know from the north come to Slave Lake. And I had a whole bunch of people. And, and I think there was 
50 or 60 different people there from nine or 10 different fire departments. And at the start, we kind of laughed because you and I were there and we knew each other. And so then, of course, we're walking around getting to, and you know, everyone that I know, and I know everyone, you know, and so we're kind of two guys walking around, but it's kind of like nine or 10 separate pods. Everyone's by themselves. And then we went out and did the training. And at lunchtime, we had a big barbecue. And then you kind of start to see, okay, well, the communities that are close by, they're having lunch together. Mm. Right. And, and it was kind of funny. And, and then at the end of the day, you couldn't have, other than the name on the coveralls or the t-shirt, you couldn't tell who was from where 50 or 60 people just completely intertwined and and everybody just you know having fun telling stories about the day and i remember the two of us having a talk that day talking about like it worked our idea worked mm. we brought in all of these different communities and everybody's just together and now when we have these different events everyone's going to know everyone yeah. and, and I've, I've not gone with that like now that i've been doing it for a while and ever since we started doing this regional training like i push for that now all the time because you get a whole bunch of benefits out of that because we're all neighbors up north. We know it's two hours from your next fire department to the next one. But at times, we, we definitely rely on each other, even if it is a two-hour drive. <laughs> That's, it's your closest neighbor. <laughs> so knowing, you're, knowing who you're dealing with and, and being able to trust them is a big thing. Training is a lot more fun with more people. Um, you can get a lot more done with 30 people than you can with six. Trying to run a trying to run any training with six people is almost near to impossible. Nobody wants to do it because it's a lot of work. Um, you're rolling hoses, you're getting everything set up. So you're looking at a long day just for a couple hours of training. Right. Or if you're doing it with 50, you got all those hands. It's so much more fun. And then you get everybody's kind of where they're at in their careers. Some, some guys have been doing it a long time or have, they've been in it shorter, but they have a lot more experience. Like they do a lot more calls. Like if we come to sleep, they do a lot more calls and maybe the Loon River guys or the Peerless guys. So they have that experience, but it's nice to see when the Peerless guys come and they come to the Slate Lake guys and there's no water up in Peerless. How are you guys going to deal with no water? There's no smoke detectors and there's no cell service. So I think every different community has a different perspective. And I love when everybody comes together because all those stories come out. And it's true. Like I was just up doing some work with you in Peerless not that long ago. And you forget how reliant you are on cell phones, texting, emailing, all of these things. And you get up there and it doesn't have all the service everywhere, right? So you go into a building, you got to click on the wires. It's like all these different processes you have to use to overcome it. I just love that part, right? Or you go up there and you have two fire departments, what is it, 25 kilometers apart, give or take. And uh, yet it's all still just one fire department, right? So there's all these things that you see that are different, but the same. And then you talk to the firefighters. And so that's what gets me, like in my consulting life, it, it's uh, sometimes you're nervous. How will this job go? How will that job go? You know, how will everyone accept us until you talk to your first firefighter? And then you're like, oh, I know how this job will go. Same as every other job, because firefighters are firefighters are firefighters. And everybody, no matter what level they get to, started as a firefighter, right? So your career, of course, I've watched that and, and worked with you through it all. You've done emergency management. You've done firefighting. You've been a band manager. You've been a fire chief. You, you know, you had all these different jobs in all these different locations. But it's always been the key for me is to to watch you and, and the leadership piece, right? So that mentorship piece, how people gravitate towards you to see how things are going. They look for, I guess, acceptance and, uh, you know, that pat on the back to say, yeah, you're, you're doing good. We're doing the best we can. They also look to you for that. What's the next step? 
What are we going to keep learning? How are we going to keep doing this? And so I think that you and I have such similar ways about us when we do those kinds of things that it's been fun as as you change jobs, as I change jobs, and we're always quizzing each other. Well, what's that like? And what's that like? And, you know, let's get together on this and let's work on that. Been fun for me. So as you move through the ranks, as you did all these different jobs, let's talk about what was the best all the way to the hardest. We'll leave worst out of the table because there's, you know, who cares about that? But so what was the best gig you ever had? And then what was the hardest I think the best gig I have is the one I have now, actually. Okay, awesome. It's just taken me a while to get here. But now I get to help and support more communities than just one. Before it was, I was either the fire chief and, and a DEM in, in one place and was able to help that community or I'd go and be the band manager and could just still help that one community. But now I'm looking after five communities and, and supporting them um, where I get to spend a lot more time kind of doing what I love. Um, the emergency management side and, and the fire side of things, trying to get these these remote areas the support they need just because of my experience. Like I'm not, not a university degreed up person, but I've gone through enough living in the north of kind of being able to help them try to get their feet on the ground. Even with five or six firefighters, you can still you can still accomplish a lot. So I think this new job is 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 probably my best job. The hardest job I probably had when I was just starting out, working for Loon River and, and the DEM, um, I was only there for eight months, and that's when the Slave Lake fire hit. That was <laughs> probably the hardest 11 days of my entire life. I remember every single day I was working and being new at it and them just throwing this responsibility at me and saying, just go with it. I got to, we're doing an evacuation at one o'clock in the morning, like our soul didn't go out until 1201 a.m. I still remember signing it. So when I went out at 1201, we had to do an evacuation. We are evacuating to Peace River. I didn't have any staff at the time. Everybody was in holidays. Um, for some reason, there was a conference or something. So they were all stuck on the south side of Slave Lake and they couldn't get around because um, all the roads were closed. So I was there by myself. Luckily, I had um, one of the AMA officers with me, Rudy. He showed me a lot that week, but Rudy Parento, Parento, Parento showed me a lot that weekend. So every single day was 18, 20 hours because you're doing it by yourself. And that's so much I learned from that fire, just from that one fire of you need a team. And that's been my going forward. I'm not doing stuff, not doing anything by myself anymore. <laughs> you're doing that, you're doing that because you can't, you can't keep it up for that extended time because... It's kind of cool that you bring that up because I think that, you know, when certain people talk about the Slave Lake fire, it's like it was a singular event that it just happened in this one area. But that same day in our district, we're in the same forest district in those two areas, Loon and Slave. There was nine fires in that district that day and three of them ran communities out, right? And so it wasn't just Slave Lake, that's for sure. You know, Red Earth got impacted, Loon got impacted. As these nine fires grew and changed, over the, the days of the fires, it was really impacting the whole zone, right? Now, the massive amount of structures that got burnt in Slave Lake kind of took the focus and put it on that. You know, there was so many people in between Red Earth and Slave Lake that were impacted, that got stuck in their community for a while, that had to be taken out by helicopter, that had to be taken out by road, that had to go to Peace River or Athabasca or any of these other places. People just forget how big of a day and how big of an event that turned into for the next couple of weeks. Right? And, and I think it changed everybody. I think that fire 
Like I know it wasn't as big as Fort Mac and we've learned a lot, but I think it changed everybody that day, especially everybody in the Slave Lake region. And I think even, even government wise, that fire taught everybody a lot of things just because so many things were happening on that day. Working for, for First Nation definitely made a difference how AMA worked with the First Nations and back then it was INAC, how that whole process worked because back then it didn't work. That was another hard part is we were from a First Nation. We went to an EOC and we sat in a corner because they didn't know how to deal with First Nations. So we actually set up another EOC in Peace River just for our nation. Right. We weren't part of the whole big EOC as like now when we did the trout evacuation, we were one of the site commanders just being in trout and it was made a difference because you were working with everybody. You weren't just by yourself. So many times I saw that. I remember 2015, we're up in Wabiska and there was a big fire uh, that started out at the dump there. And so it's kind of spreading all over and I was in the EOC and, and Big Stone wanted to have their own EOC and MD of Opportunity wanted to have their own EOC. And, you know, it's kind of every community wants to, and we're like, no, like this is, we got to make a stand here and say, we're going to be in this together. Right. So both your communities are impacted by this fire. So be partners, be equal partners and say, okay, let's work on all this together. Uh, and that was a big win for us. It was an exciting day when everyone said, okay, that, that makes sense. Let's just have one EOC and we'll get everybody in here and, and picking a location course then is always <laughs> the next thing, but it, but it was nice to see everybody working together. And that was one of the first times where I can really remember it started to work. Like everyone was just a person. So we have 4,000 people we have to worry about. We don't really care where they're from. We don't really care about their background. We just care that they're going to get taken care of. So are we sending them here? Are we sending them there? And everybody's going to just be a person equal to the core. Right. And so it was fun. It was fun to be part of that and see that change, that uh, transition to that full inclusion where everybody's voice mattered and everybody had to. So I agree with you. I think that you get to see, out of the bad stuff, the good stuff start to grow and move forward and and uh, come through. So well, I know with, with most of our emergencies in the north, like there's no boundaries. I know the province has crown lands and the feds have their reserve lands and stuff. But when it comes to emergencies, fires aren't start stopping at the border and saying, "Nope, can't go there because it's." Or if there is a motor vehicle accident on the highway, your closest fire department that's going to respond is on reserve. We're not stopping because. Somebody said that's not your 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 jurisdiction. Somebody calls us. There's there's somebody that needs help. We're going. So and I think governments are starting to recognize that. We're, there's no boundaries. We're just all here to do one right. job. And I think that's some of the older, uglier parts of the fire service when it was those huge turf wars, right? Where it's like, well, you can't go because that's our piece of highway. Yeah, but I'm 30 kilometers closer than you. Yeah. You know, like I for the patient, for the people, it it's best if you can come too. But we should all go, right? Well, that's how I started my first fire department. Well, six years of, of fire services. It was a jurisdiction fight over turf. And um, we lost the house, actually, because of that jurisdiction. And that's when Loon River started their, their first fire department and built my first truck. It's still, still in operation today, but... I've definitely learned from there. My next six <laughs> trucks have been got a little better. <laughs> got a little better, but I still go back to that to that truck because that was where I started from. Yeah, no, oh, that's cool. It's uh, when I think back to the start for me, you know, the the very fire departments that 
we ended up being the closest with and regionalized with were the ones that we fought with the most, right? It'd be like, let's get there and beat them and steal their fire or accident. And, you know, they'd show up and it was nothing short of a fist fight sometimes when you're showing up on these calls to where it is today, where it's just like everyone shows up, we get the job done. It's a bunch of high fives and let's get together and see you at training next weekend. And, you know, it's just really changed the way that we do everything. One of the harder parts is the farther north you go, the more the communities are apart, right? So we're talking about a two-hour travel time. And so for some, like, that's your closest neighbor. So it is what it is. And you're going to, you know, that's, that's who's going to come and help you. But it's a long wait, right? But it's always still the same, like, when everybody shows up together, right? Another great thing that's changed is, you know, if you said, hey, I can only spare two people because my community's small to come help with a big event. Before, they'd always be like, oh, don't bother then. And now it's like, if you can send one, if you can send two, whatever you can send, let's like come down, right? They're going to bring some expertise. They're going to learn some stuff and bring it back. And so we get this kind of mentality where as many people as we can get there, the better, right? This summer has been tough. It's been tough to watch, right? Lots of silos, lots of, you know, ugliness in the social media about how come they don't do this and how come they don't do that? You see the politics, you see the greed, you see all this weirdness. But when you cut through all of that and you're just dealing with firefighters, right? I'm looking at a firefighters Facebook page, a firefighters Instagram page. You see the pride still in firefighting that cuts through all of the politics, all of the greed, all of the, that they're just happy. Hey, these firefighters came from this place and they're just here helping us and we're happy to have them. And so I think that slowly we're starting to break through all the nastiest pieces to get to those pieces that we all know and love. Yeah, I think if you look at any firefighter, they take politics out of their job completely. There's none of that. And, and I think both me and you know, there, there is that, that ugly side of politics and everything else that comes with it. And that a lot of the firefighters don't see because they're just there to do their job. From, from where we stood at the top end, looking kind of down, uh, you do see all the ugliness from the, the, the crowns and your councils, whoever you're working with, that don't see all the effort that the firefighters put in. They don't see the 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning call outs because they're all sleeping. Um, yeah, the firefighters are doing it just because they love it. Um, and, and they keep all the politics out of it for, for the most part. But. For sure. Couldn't agree more. So you talked a little bit about the trout fire. I think that it wouldn't be fair to have you here and not talk more about that. I mean, there must have been the good, the bad, the ugly and all of that. It was at the end of the day, what we call a pretty successful fire because, you know, no structures were lost and, and you guys had to evacuate some, but you're able to bring people back in a timely fashion. So, you know, what was the, the good, the bad and the ugly as far as the trout fire goes for you? Hmm. That was an easy one. The good was everybody working together. We ended up being, just because of where we were, we ended up being one of the command posts out of the three. So there was Slave and, and Wabaska had all command posts. Um, for some strange reason, they put me in charge of the trout one. But we had forestry there. We had our SPU, different teams there. And then we had our local guys there. That was the best part, everybody together. We had 80 people there working out of the small little trout fire hall. Uh, there was no no cell service or anything up there, but we all ended up. We actually ended up. Each group had to do supper for everybody every <laughs> one night of the week, yeah, nice. which was fun. A couple of times, people were putting signs up on the little gazebos on who was cooking. Uh, but that that part was the good part. I guess the bad part is we were there by ourselves. We didn't have any help. At the exact same time, that's when the high-level fire was going. Wabashka was just 
just about under flames then. We were still about six kilometers away from the community, but we were there, but we didn't have any other emergency management there. We didn't have ISC there. We were there by ourselves. We had AMA come up for two days, but then he said, well, you guys don't need me here. And he took off the high level. So I guess that was the bad part. Everybody working together. We just seamlessly worked together. When we did the evacuation, it only took us two and a half hours to get 500 people moved. Um, That's a record. <laughs> we had to pull a lot of strings. Like going out to Peerless and Trout in the middle of May, the road is pretty dusty. So we actually had to call the AMA because nobody was listening to us. Like we couldn't get them to stop hauling trucks and stuff on that road. And we're like, well, you got 500 people and cars coming. You guys, it's going to be a little you dangerous. Gotta stop. <laughs> you got to yeah. stop. So we actually had to call the transportation minister to get him to haul the, like, stop the, the trucks and get some water on those roads to get them out. But two and a half hours, like we had everything done. Yeah. We had the RCMP working, forestry, our local guys, and everybody just, we just had it set up so perfect. To me, that's that local knowledge, right? That you know the road conditions, you know what you got to do to get those people across. You know the people that can go out and water the roads. You know the people that can, right? And so as much as you are by yourselves, you are also with all of the people that know that area better than anybody else, right? Yeah, I think everybody's so used to being up there, they know the process. Like, everybody's amazed that we got everybody out in two and a half hours, but they're so used to it. Like, every single year, everybody up in the north is ready for wildfire season. <laughs> like, I don't think, ever since Slave Lake and even a couple of fires before that, everybody realizes that comes every year. Yeah, the wildfire history map, I always refer to that for the Slave Lake District. You know, since the start of recorded history, this area has been under threat of wildfire, right? And and a lot of it's May, but it goes all the way through June, July, August, into September even sometimes. And I think you're right. I think that we know it and we're ready for it. But somehow, some way, it still surprises everybody else yeah. <laughs> that uh, that it's going to happen and, and what's going to happen at, um, when the fire comes. But you know what? We're used to it. Northern Alberta, right? Actually, all of Alberta, floods, fires, tornadoes, the list goes on and on of things that are happening. And and I think that we're very used to disasters. We're very prone to disasters. And we're getting better every day at, at dealing with them. Um, you know, I laugh and I, I think about, you know, when you first started with your emergency management stuff, when I first started with my emergency management stuff, it was kind of unheard of, you know, it was all of our emergency management documents would still have the wartime, <laughs> peacetime, you know, that kind of wording in them, right? So those documents were old. They were from the 40s and 50s. And and uh, now you look at it and it's it's an actual trade. It's a job. It's a career. You can take emergency management in school. You can. And so to me, it's just so exciting to see where it's gone and, and how it's being dealt with today versus in the past lots of good bad and ugly in that side of it as well but these big fires kind of show you you know you had said earlier i don't know how i got picked for that i certainly can tell you how you got picked for that and that was your leadership capability and your knowledge of the area and your ability to work together with everybody i got to sit right there and listen to the conversations about who was going to be in charge of where and and uh you know, it was great because you, you're sitting there and you're listening to all these people talk about these things and you're hearing names of people that you trust and you know they'll work together and they'll figure it out. Great job up there. Um, you know, we talked multiple times at the start of all of those things to say, you know, who's going to be where. And 
And uh, over time, they send you other good people to team up with and, and help out. And then you just lead the local people that are there and, you know, willing and able to, to do what you got to do. You know, if I went up to Trout and tried to evacuate 500 people in two and a half hours, it would be a complete gong show. Because I don't know the area. I don't know the people. I don't know how to get things done. I don't, right? So you really do have to count on local people to give you local knowledge. Yeah, if you, if you don't have that, like, without your team... You're nothing. For sure. I've learned that so many times over the years. <laughs> if, if you don't have those people with it, you, you can't get anything accomplished. So Yeah, it's it's true. Okay, so we're talking about small areas, small communities. There's huge challenges in recruiting, right? There's huge challenges in operations. And some because it's a small community, right, with only a few hundred people. Some because it's a remote community with a long drive to other places. But one of my favorite parts of talking about community is like the internal family politics, I'll call it. So you could be like, if you piss off one firefighter, you might lose five because their family's all in on it too. But in reverse, if you get one firefighter, you might get a bunch of people from their family. You might gain six or seven. So you're kind of, you've been doing this from the start. What? Give me, yeah. give me your thoughts yeah. on that. We have, and that's definitely true. If, if we can get one firefighter going who's bringing his brothers or his wife, um, even for me, um, my wife, my, my stepson, my stepdaughter, my son have all joined the fire department <laughs> because I talk about it all the time. Um, sure. It's a family business. Right? It, it is. And they've, they've gotten, gotten to learn to love, love it, especially the training. They love going out and training. They're definitely there to help too, but they've, they've learned a lot. But that goes with everything. Once I left and took five people with me, actually, there's nobody there now. So we're trying to regain that back up with my new position. And same same with every other fire department that I've been on or helped with. It's the biggest family usually usually runs it. And then if they leave, we're, we're in a hole again. And, but I think that's everywhere, especially in the north. These small towns, recruitment is your biggest, biggest thing. You can have all the equipment in the world, but... To have two people that try to do a structure fire is impossible. For sure. Yeah, you need trucks that can do more with less, right? The pump and roll stuff and and booster reels and all of those. But, you know, to me, I really look at that family dynamics. And, and it's uh, the smaller the community, the more remote the community, the more you have those, right? Oh, definitely. It's a stigma that I fight and my son fights as we go through, right? And say, oh, well, I don't know if we can have two people working on the same fire department from a family. And it's like then you don't know anything about firefighting because yeah. firefighting is a family, family business. business. Right? Who else would put up with all of the late night calls and the long hours and the, and the low pay than your family. Right. Uh, so, and then I guess gets up to like these, these small towns have small councils. If you're not the right person in the right job, then you're not there. So um, that's definitely hard to fight with. And definitely with these small towns, if you don't have leadership behind you, you don't have anything. It's that's probably my biggest struggle is being a director, is getting the politicians, the leaders behind what you're trying to do. Like a lot of these places, we see one structure for every year. Right. So they're like, well, why are we paying two hundred thousand dollar budget to save one house? And for me, it's it's never ever thinking that way. Yeah. If I save one person. It's What's priceless. that worth, right? Exactly. And, and that's what I always go to the leadership is, so if it's your house burning, who do you want working on it? You want five guys that have never turned on a pump truck or guys that know how to turn it on in 30 seconds. 
and all those other calls, right? The the medicals, the car accidents, the quad rollover, the I mean, the list goes on and on. It's we always stay prepared for a fire, and it probably takes the bulk of the training. But that training also slingshots us forward on all of those other calls. Yeah, and, and like I said before, like you have to know everything out there. Peerless Trail, where we are, it's it's a two hour drive. Wait for an ambulance. Ninety five percent of their calls are medical assists, and they're probably some of the best medics that I know. Um, they deal with everything. Last year, we've probably done three labors and three given births, and a whole bunch of ODs. We've had suicides. We've had stabbings. We've had almost, all the most terrifying things. Almost most terrifying things, and they go to these calls every single time. So I can't be more proud of that that fire department because they're always going but every single fire department up here that we worked with they're all the same they'll go to anything it's their brother their sister they see some of the worst stuff that a lot of people don't see either so yeah to me i think going down to a city where you know i don't know that many people it's a blessing and a curse right it's uh nobody knows me it's great i got a chance to learn all about other people but then the chance of me going on a call that has that personal connection, that family connection, that good friend connection is next to nothing for me. But then that being said, all of us wouldn't want to be anywhere else other than there helping the people, yeah. right? Whether it's your family or your friends or or whatever, you still want to be there because if you're their best chance, you want to be there and give them their best chance. And so the smaller and more remote, the more dangerous it's going to be that you're going to know somebody. It's going to be a loved one, right? But it also gives you the best chance to be there and provide the service and, and help them out. So it's a catch 22. It's, it's super hard for sure. Then you get distances for service, right? So, you know, if I'm in a city and I call and I want to get my truck serviced, I want to get my truck pump tested. I want to get a CVIP. I could probably get that the next day or the day after someone will come to me if I want them to versus Hey, from six hours away, when can you guys be here to, to try and fix this truck? And, and so it's costly, right? Which sucks because it's already hard to get enough tax base and get enough money. And right. And then it's also, if it's your one truck and it's down, you have no trucks. You have to be strategic and making sure that you're calling your neighbors saying, my truck's going to be down for a day or two getting some service work on it. Can we call you if we really need you for something like we always have to go through the whole protocols of calling 911 service or dispatch service and saying we're not doing any medical responses for the next two days because we just don't have the vehicle to get there. So and then you're seeing ambulances drive by and people are phoning. Why aren't we getting upset? <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. I mean, it's just that distance thing, right? It's that time. It's They can go and do a job and do six fire trucks that are 25 minutes apart, or they can come up and do one that's six hours away. It's hard. I, I see it all the time. The smaller, the more remote the community, the harder it is to get these services. You send out your combi tool to get fixed, and it takes two weeks. You're without that rescue service in that area for two weeks, right? So there's all these challenges, right? In these smaller communities. And I think that it's good to talk about that because not everyone realizes it, right? Maybe you're from a small community and you're just two miles away from the next one or 20 miles away from the next one. Up here, you're 200 kilometers away. <laughs> and it gets tough. So right now, the biggest changes bring the busiest pieces of life. So you're flat out. Flat, flat out. <laughs> you know, you came from, you were at a conference in Kelowna a couple of days ago. 
all the way back here having meetings with me and now you're doing the podcast and i think hopefully fingers crossed you'll get the long weekend off but then i know you you'll be back on the road <laughs> and, and cranking over the kilometers the challenge that that puts on your personal life let's talk about that for a second so the busiest jobs right the biggest jobs bring the busiest of times and we all pay that price our families all pay that price how do we get through that a lot of the people that listen to this podcast ask me those questions now right like how do we juggle all this stuff it's not easy <laughs> not, i don't think it ever is i think you have to have a very understanding family they know and i've had a lot of arguments and i actually my first first marriage was ended because of my work so plus other things but it's just just trying to find that balance and and i'm lucky with my new job i do get to work at home so i do get to spend some time with my family i'm on the road a lot but that's why i took this other job as i'm not away for for an extended amount of time but they they know and i've heard my wife say it is your phone goes 24 hours i'm getting texts and <laughs> and some days you just learn you have to shut your phone off i think that's you just don't answer your calls some days because you know when it's an emergency you know who's calling when it's an emergency or if it's just something to do with administration it can wait and nine o'clock call at night for a purchase order is just not gonna cut it right yeah 60 cc emails that don't yeah. really have anything to do with you versus that hey yeah. there's a flood or a fire and we need you up here is different eh? so I, i've learned i've learned over the years that i've got to delegate a lot of stuff at first, when I got into this, I was going home. I was going as hard as I could. I pretty much burned myself out a couple of times. That's why I moved positions. But um, I've definitely learned that time is precious. Nothing else. It's it's time is your most precious commodity. Um, you got to learn how to juggle it properly. I, I hear you, buddy. <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> I and, and, I st and I still get caught up where I don't. I end up work until 10 o'clock at night and my better half is no time to shut it off or go to bed or you're sleeping on the couch if you don't quit it so yeah no fair enough it's a it's a big challenge right and you know we get brand new firefighters asking us about it and say you know is it worth all the hassle is it worth all the time away from family i mean i always have to say yes i think that we have the greatest job on the planet i wouldn't trade the job of working with the fire service for anything there's no other job i'd rather have to be fair i've never tried out like being a billionaire or anything so maybe that's better <laughs> but uh, as far as the you know the working stiff i think this is this is as good as any for me i love every single piece of it i'm happy that you know in this job change you stayed in the emergency world because i think that it's super important for us to have great leaders and great mentors for the next officers and firefighters to come up i really see that with you right it's it's kind of like you're a bit like a, a TELUS hotspot. Wherever you go, the fire department really builds and grows and, and you see a lot of good stuff. So like you, I'm, I'm happy that you're now with five different communities because that gives a chance for all five communities to become a hotspot and to grow and to build. No pressure. <laughs> Just well, I, think it's a, I think it's a consistency too. We know in the fire service, a lot of people change people come and go all the time but i think if you have that consistency there with somebody that you can always kind of go to and and lean on i think communities need that because staff are always coming and going especially in these small communities especially in the north where it's oil-based or 
Um, there's always people coming in out of the fire service. So if you have somebody there that's consistent and you can always go to, you're not losing track of anything. And that's why I love the new position is I can be consistent for more people instead of one certain community. Right. I love that. It just gives them always that person to count on, to ask advice and, and to uh, even your contact with the leadership in every community. You know, never mind recruiting firefighters. One of the toughest things to do right now, keeping up on equipment, all those things. But you actually get that consistent interaction with all of the leadership. And and if I learned one thing in my consulting life since I've been doing this, it's that, you know, people don't know what they don't know. It's that simple. They're always trying to do a good job. They're always trying to make sure that they've found the right things to do to keep firefighters safe, to keep the community safe. But at the end of the day, you just simply don't know what you don't know. And the time constraints are so harsh on us that we don't really have time to go out there and do all that learning. Right. You can't crack a book for two years and learn all the things you don't know and then start to apply them because one, maybe you're doing it for free or two, you're one person doing the job of 10 or whatever. So to me, having those really good leaders out there to to mentor the next up and coming generation. Right. What's the best thing that an old firefighter can teach a young firefighter? How to become an old firefighter. Right. And so that, you know, those things are true. But along the way. The changes have been incredible. With the technology we have today, I can remember, speaking of technology, the first time you ever showed me the drone that you guys have up there. And you know, the thing can fly autonomously and it can stay up there for an hour, you know, and, and then all of these things. And and I remember saying to you, like, why why do you have this thing? This this is crazy. This is huge. It's expensive. And you're like, well, we don't have the people. So we have to overcome the lack of people with technology. And it was like I could tell you, I can think back to that day and remember thinking, holy crap, important lesson, right? If there's something out there that lets us overcome a problem, we have to look at it. No matter how crazy it seems at the time. Of course, now, today, you you were using drones when drones weren't cool. Yeah. Now you got the coolest drone in the coolest time and everyone's trying to get on, on board with that. But that whole thing that you said to me about, I don't have the people, so I have to overcome it with technology has stuck with me on so many levels with so many things. And so, you know, that's cool. Yeah. I think even for these remote places where there isn't technology, technology can definitely, definitely help out like with the drone and, and drones have changed so much since I bought that first drone. Like that first drone we bought was so expensive and now we're down to a one that shows up in a briefcase, does about the exact same thing from what I did have. It's almost like a mini car that we flew in the sky. It took two people to drive it. But like we had a great community. They stood behind me on, on a lot of things that I did. And I said, we had four search and rescues in just over a year. And I said, we took search and rescue 12 hours to get out here just because of where we were. We ended up getting a guy out of, out of a lake. Well, my team did. Um, getting out of a guy out of a lake, he had a three-hour quad ride with a broken hip over two quads and a boat. And I said, we need something. Luckily, there hasn't been a whole lot of search and rescues that we've had to do since then. But I said, if this $50,000 machine saves one person, it's, it's worth every dime. We've gone to different machines now and... Um, we've been called out to a couple of other other places where they just can't get people in there. Like the bush in the north is so hard to get through. You can't take quads. You can't take people. So having a, a drone go up for 45 minutes to do five square kilometers is definitely better than having 100 people try to do it in the same amount of time. 
yeah that well, you don't have so for sure i mean uh it's just like a cheap helicopter for us right now we don't have to have all the people in the helicopter and all the fuel and all the cost you can just have this drone and go up and do the the same type of job so anyways just so you know for a fact you have taught me as much as i ever taught you i appreciate that i thank you for that keep up the great work keep going yes we got to take care of ourselves and, and find a way to balance that whole you know we want to help everyone all the time with hey we got to have a life too there's a lesson in that for you and my you and me and everybody else that uh, that's listening to us right but i think when you look back i always say anyways I'll, I'll never be sad when i look back on a 30-year career and say oh i wish i wouldn't have helped so much i wish i wouldn't have done so much we do get to live this incredible life and, and work with these incredible people. So, okay, you got, let's just say, give or take 10,000 people listening to you. What else you got? What's what's your final words? I think I'm in the same boat. I think I'm never going to regret anything I did in the fire service. I know I haven't learned everything or, or never will. Just the history and, and the past I've had and how many people I have helped definitely resonates with me. And I think it, it'll always be there. And just having... So many people support you. You supported me along the way. I've had so many people just say, keep going and doing what you're doing and, and asking to do different things, go and do a presentation. It just means so much to me that all my hard work is actually getting out to people. Like Sometimes I feel like it, it doesn't. Some days I, I'm like, why am I doing this job? I'm putting in 20 hours. And But then you get the people where you're going to do a presentation for 400 people because you did something right for once. That's the part of my job that I love doing, um, just making that difference. Even if it's a small couple people come and say, thanks for, for doing this, that makes my day. For sure. You know, we were just up in Peerless Trout and got to see you interact with all the, the folks from the community. And you could see the pride in what you're doing. You could see how that, uh, you know, they were happy that you were there and, and how important you were to the community. So, you know, for me, I've, I've loved seeing that in all the different communities you work for. Love working with you you know just we'll just keep it going definitely <laughs> all right episode 23 growing up fire jason wigton here director of technical and emergency services thanks for being here buddy appreciate it thank you thanks for listening to growing up fire today follow me on instagram at chief coots to comment or send questions we appreciate your support